0: Today we are jumping back into the series. <laughs> jumping, we're jumping back into the series um, that we were in um, a few weeks ago called "Let the Light In," which is probably the first teaching series at KXC that's had a bit of a theme song for it. And I'm loving the energy right now. So you're you going to go with me on this bit, yeah? Open up the windows. Let the light in. Yes, yes, I love it. It was great. Um, the question we've basically been asking over the past few weeks um, has been, how do we open up the windows of our lives? Like, how do we pull back the drapes, the things that allow darkness to fester within us? How do we pull those things back and uh, let the light in? And we want to live lives of undivided devotion to Jesus. Like, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, like, we want to be people who shine like stars in the universe, holding out the word of life to our generation. But the truth is that this is not always easy, right? Life sometimes just seems to happen around us and our best intentions never quite seem to surface above the currents of everyday life. Like We want to live in the light of what Jesus came to bring, but rather than kind of doing the hard work of pulling out the nails from the boarded up windows of our lives, it's just a lot easier and a, a lot less disruptive just to find a torch and learn to live with the darkness, to live with undivided devotion to Jesus is a wrestle. And the New Testament um, writers knew that this wasn't easy, and they pointed to three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as actively standing in opposition to anyone who wants to live in this way. And Christians throughout the centuries, they've experienced this wrestle And there was this guy called Evagrius Ponticus, um, who was a fourth century monk with the most utterly brilliant name ever. Um, But he knew what it was like. He knew what this wrestle was like. And he devised this framework of seven sins that seemed to stop um, people living in the light of who they were called to be. And over time, this framework was developed into the seven deadly sins um, that some of you might have heard of. And a little while after that, the church said, okay, if like, that's what it looks like to live in darkness, like, let's put a bit more of a positive spin on this. Like, What does it look like to live in the light? And they devised seven corresponding virtues that spoke of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. So over this series, we've basically been looking at these two lists, asking like, how do we be people who move from darkness into light? And today, we're excited. We're looking at slothfulness, guys. We're going there. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, And I'm not going to lie, like slothfulness, fascinating topic, Um, not one that we regularly preach about here at KXC, Um, and all I've had in my mind all week is just Sid the sloth from Ice Age, um, which would take this talk in an interesting direction, but I'm like, okay, slothfulness, kind of hard, maybe we'll just focus on the virtue this week. Diligence, okay, like it's not the sexiest of virtues, is it? It's kind of like a tricky sell. Like, I'm not sure, like, those who've set up a dating profile, like, diligence is probably not the characteristic you're looking for most in a person. But, kind of, as I've opened up the scripture, as I've kind of prayed about this topic, I've actually become so, so excited to preach on this. Because as I've been praying, I actually wonder if this is one of the biggest battles that the church is facing right now. Because what slothfulness is, like, it's not laziness. It's not like, you know, the person sitting on the couch, eating a load of crisps, watching TV. Like, banish that image from your mind. Like, that is not what slothfulness is. That wasn't how the 4th century monks understood the term. The way that slothfulness was understood is that slothfulness is a symptom of the settled state of despair on the soul. So the despair becomes too much, and so we cope by just becoming numb. We go into a slothful state, and we numb our hearts with all kinds of things, all kinds of ways. Like for some of us, it's withdrawing from the world, but for most of us, it's actually probably being overly busy. Like busyness is a sign of a slothful heart. It's a way to distract ourselves from sitting with the deeper questions, the deeper feelings of what's actually going on within us. But this numbness, this slothfulness is what puts the church to sleep. So if that's slothfulness, like what is diligence? Well, diligence, it isn't just something reserved for the job description of account departments. Like diligence is a symptom of the settled state of hope on the soul. Like diligence is the ability to persevere until the end because your soul lives in hope. Like diligence in scripture, like the Hebrew, it it car- We love the Hebrew, don't we? The Hebrew guys, it's all good. The Hebrew carries the connotations of perseverance, of endurance, like being able to complete a difficult journey. So to be diligent is not to sleepwalk through life. It's not to withdraw or just kind of stay where we are. To be um, diligent is to be fully, fully awake. And the reason I think this is so key for us as a church today is because if slothfulness becomes the territory in which we live, like over time, this apathetic state, it dulls our hearts. It numbs our hearts in such a way that we are unable to receive the good news of Jesus. And if you have a numb heart, like the tragedy is you will be robbed of the daily joy of the gospel that should be yours. And like the enemy is delighted because if Christians forget the joy of the gospel, like if they don't recognise the extraordinary gift of their salvation, then the world will remain in darkness. And so today, I just really want to unpack this um, a bit more by just asking two really simple questions. Like, how do we fall asleep? And secondly, how do we wake up? Like, how do we become people who aren't just sleepwalking through life, but who are able to recognise, like, the significance of the good news that we carry? Like, my prayer for us as, like, as a church has been, like, Lord, would you recapture the joy of our salvation? Like, would we recapture it again? Like, sure, for our sake, but for the sake of this city right now as well. And that can only be a work of the Spirit, so can I pray for us um, as we carry on? So, Lord, we just thank you so much for your presence here. Lord, thank you that there is joy in this room tonight. And we ask for more. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts afresh to hear a word from you. Lord, would you take these words I'm about to say and would you use them for your glory? Amen. Amen. So grab your Bibles. Um, It will also come up on the screen. But we are going to be looking at Deuteronomy 4 today, verses um, 7 to 9. Was that a woo for Deuteronomy? I love that. Yes, Tom. Great energy bring more of that. Um, so just to give a bit of context before we read this, like we're joining the story of the Israelites in the desert. So they've been rescued miraculously by God, they've passed through the Red Sea, they've wandered around the desert for years, and they're just about to cross the Jordan, finally to get to the promised land. And we're joining the story when Moses is basically gathering the Israelites together, and he's telling them some really key things that they need to hold on to as they enter into this new land. So we're going to read from verse 7. And this is Moses speaking to the Israelites. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such a righteous decrees and laws as as this body of the laws I'm setting before you today? And he's talking about the Ten Commandments here. And then he says this, he says, Be careful, watch over your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Okay, so what is going on here? Well, the chapter goes on to recount those extraordinary things that the Israelites have seen. Moses reminds them that they've seen the literal, like, fire of God blazing on top of a mountain, like the presence of God. You know, he's reminding them of the times that um, they were fed in the wilderness, like manna dropping from heaven, all of these miracles. But then he warns them that unless they watch over their souls diligently, like they're going to forget the things they've seen. Like in other words, like Moses is saying, like, guys, it is entirely possible for you who have seen God move in extraordinary ways. Like it's possible for you to have experienced all of that. But unless you watch over your souls diligently, unless you keep those things close to your heart, you will forget who God is. And if you forget who God is, you're going to forget who you really are and who you're called to be. Like, he's pleading with them in this moment, like, do not forget the story you belong to. Like, don't become so focused on other things that you let those truths fade from your heart. Do everything possible to stay in the story you belong to. And I just, I wonder if, like, Moses rocked up at KXC tonight, um, apart from being slightly shocked. um, I wonder if actually what he might say to us is something along these lines. Like, KXC, like, you have seen God move. Like you have experienced his power. Like the way your church started, it was from miracle after miracle of provision. Like the healings you've seen in your midst, like you have seen stories of lives being woven back together. You have seen and tasted the very power of God in your midst. And yet it's entirely possible for you to have witnessed all of that and in a couple of years' time have a faith that's asleep. Like, to have fallen asleep, to have forgotten the joy of your salvation and live a life devoid of hope, let alone hope for the world. So going back to that first question, like, how do we fall asleep? Well, as we said at the beginning, we enter into this slothful state as a way of trying to numb ourselves from despair. So how does kind of despair creep in? Well, despair becomes the settled state of our heart when we forget our story. Like, when we forget the truth of who God is. In other words, um, in the words of Moses, when God fades from our hearts. And I kind of, as I look around our city today, like, this slothful state, this numbness seems so prevalent. And if we just kind of scratch below the surface a bit, we find a world that's lost their story. It's a world without a story, and it feels pretty hopeless, like the reality is, like we live um, in a society that for the last kind of few centuries, has sought to deconstruct any overarching story that seeks to explain the world. Like any external authority has been rejected, and kind of sociologists are saying like we live in this like, nihilistic culture, like one that says life's meaningless, like there's nothing out there. We don't need to submit to anything external because there's no such thing as ultimate truth. Like the only thing that matters is what is within you, how you feel. Because what else is there? And so the plumb line for what's right and wrong, like for how we should understand the world is subjective. It's internal, it's based on our feelings, and it's located in the self. But the reality is that's quite a crushing weight for someone to live under. And no matter how much self-reflection we do, no matter how much we look within us, there's this emptiness and longing inside of us. Because nothing else seems to fill it. And people start to feel this deep restlessness within because they're paralyzed by a desire for meaning which they're told doesn't exist. And so as a way of escaping this, we start to numb ourselves, to enter this kind of state of slothfulness and apathy because it all becomes a bit too much. And it's the only way to survive in a world without a story. Like our culture has forgotten the truth of who God is. Like, it's desperately trying to recreate a story for itself in which it can belong. But guys, we know the story that people are searching for. And it's not a story that comes from within us. Like, it's not based on our feelings. It's the truth that there is a God. There's a God who loves this world so much that 2,000 years ago, in the person of Jesus Christ, he died an excruciating death on a cross and he rose again for you. Like, conquering death, in order to give us an unshakable hope for the future. Like, we have a truth that is solid and certain. Like, no matter the internal or external chaos that's flying around you right now, your life isn't meaningless. Like, you have a purpose, and it doesn't depend on you to concoct it. Like, we don't have to rely on my truth or, like, your truth. We get to know the truth, and he will exist whether we choose to believe in him or not. And this is the joy of the gospel. Like there is truth, and it doesn't depend on us. I've had um, like moments in my life where I've like really struggled with quite bad anxiety, um, and I had a particularly bad bout kind of nine years ago or so, um, and it was really crippling. Kind of took me out of normal life for a bit of a time. But in that moment, what kept me going? Like it wasn't what was within me. Like it wasn't how I felt. What kept me going was being able to hold on to something outside of myself. Or maybe more accurately, discovering that Jesus was holding on to me in that moment. And so when I felt nothing at all, like when my emotions were kind of dulled um, and not to be relied upon, I discovered that my faith wasn't based on my feelings. Like my feelings didn't make something true or not. My faith was, was based on what Jesus did for me. And maybe some of you can relate to that right now. Maybe you're walking through a season of life that is just so difficult, that's so hard. Maybe kind of peace feels elusive. There's just this whirring going on in your mind. And if that's you today, like even if you can't feel it right now, what I want to say to you is that there is hope. Not because of anything you can do. Not because of anything that you have to muster up within yourself, but because Jesus is alive. And if we follow him, like, there will be a firm foundation beneath your feet, even when it feels like the world is falling apart. And I um, remember during that kind of season um, of my life, um, I read C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Surprised by Joy, and it basically is his testimony, it goes through um, his kind of story as a childhood, um, he watched his mother die, and then he had to fight in World War I, and his eventual kind of atheist, like, just like, I can't believe that there is a God. And then his slow kind of journey in realising that actually Jesus Christ is Lord. And um, I absolutely fell in love with this book during kind of this really difficult season of my life. Because Lewis managed to speak about joy in such a way that I thought, even in this anxious state, I am in, I think I might be able to know that kind of joy. And then Lewis describes joy not as this kind of happy, clappy sentiment. He spoke of joy as the moment when you remember that the longing deep within you, which you could never satisfy by yourself, has come to find you. And as I read this book, it was like just my heart started to wake up again. And whilst everything else was still felt like chaos inside of me, like the way that Lewis spoke about Jesus, it was like this joy just, I can't describe it, started to creep up on me almost. I just like remember sitting in a chair one morning in my bedroom, like feeling totally anxious, but realising that this state of anxiety wasn't going to be the end of my story. And I found the more Lewis spoke about Jesus, the more sure I became that whilst it felt pretty bleak there and then, there was a truer and a deeper story that underpinned my life. And like that is the power of the gospel. That is the story that we have in our hands. But like Moses says, it's so easy for those truths to fade from our hearts. Like it's so easy for apathy that's so dominant in our culture to become the posture of our faith. Where we once were kind of on fire to find ourselves just slowly drifting asleep, forgetting the deeper story, the truer story that underpins our lives. Like it's so easy for slothfulness just to kind of reign in our hearts. And one of my kind of favorite um, Bible stories is The Road to Emmaus, and it's found in Luke 24. Um, And if you don't know the story, two of Jesus' disciples, they're walking to Emmaus, and um, they just witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. So they're just in turmoil. Um, They're heartbroken by Jesus' death. Their hopes for the future totally crushed. And they're wandering along this dusty road, and then Jesus just starts to walk alongside them. But they don't recognize it's Jesus. In verse 17, it says, their faces were downcast, and they don't recognize him at all. And it's basically like this comedy sketch cuz like Jesus is like, "Hello. <laughs> I'm I'm here." And they just don't recognize him and they just think he's a stranger. So kind of Jesus just starts unpacking the scriptures with them. They have this great chat about why the Messiah must die. But all the while the disciples are basically missing the extraordinary good news that's right in front of them. Like Jesus is with them. And we could look at that and just think, what total idiots, what utter utter Muppets, like how on earth did they not realise that Jesus, like the Son of God, the risen Saviour, was right next to them? And yet I know in my life there are moments when there's disappointment I've experienced or like the thing that I'm holding onto like so tightly or just like the busyness of everyday life has clouded over the truth that the risen Saviour is walking right along beside me. Like there is a joy that's been robbed in those moments because I've been numb to his presence. And I just, I wonder if for some of us today, like we know we're asleep. Like we know we probably should care a bit more, but we just don't have the energy. Like we feel weary. And I'm not just kind of talking about, you know, you stayed up late last night, but there's this kind of soul weariness, a tiredness in our souls. And you've just slightly resigned yourself to, oh, this is just how it's always going to be. This is just what life must be like. But I just feel like right now, if, if that is you, like Jesus wants to meet you on that road today. Like even if you've given up hope of things ever changing, like he's got more for you. So how do we wake up? Well, the moment those two disciples realise that it's actually Jesus who is with them is when Jesus stands up and he breaks bread. And it's like that moment, they're like instantly reminded um, of the Last Supper, when Jesus got up, broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And it's almost like this symbol of the gospel that he is doing, like his death and then his resurrection. And if we want to wake up, if we want to live a life that doesn't miss Jesus in our midst, a life um, that has the the ability to persevere until the end, then we need to live in light of the gospel story. Because when we live in the gospel story, when we call to mind again and again what Jesus has done for us, then hope starts to replace despair in our hearts. And hope is what enables us to persevere. Christopher Wright, um, an Old Testament scholar, he puts it like this. He says, The biblical vision of the future is not to be regarded as psychological escapism from the problem of the present. Christian hope is not just a utopian dream of what might be like a wistful if only. Such dreaming can lead to despair and cynicism regarding the present. It is rather a vision of what will be, because God will do it. And one of the ways that we cultivate and grow this kind of hope is through the practice of prayer. Like intentionally choosing each day to take our eyes off the world and fix them solely on Jesus. And if you kind of look at the stories um, of when the church has been most awake, you'll see it's when it's learned to pray. Like when you look at individual testimonies, like you'll see that those who finish well, like instead of becoming more and more cynical, but who are growing more and more alive in their faith, they're the people who have learned how to faithfully persevere in prayer. Like who have set aside time just each morning, turning up every day and spending time with him. And it's not because prayer in and of itself, like, wakes us up. It's because prayer, like, the time that we set aside is the vehicle for communion with God. Like, prayer wakes us up because when we pray, we're growing in intimacy with him as we spend time with him. And, you know, the more we spend time with Jesus, the more his hope becomes the lens through which we see life. One of the um, incredible truths that we read earlier in Deuteronomy 4 is when Moses tells the Israelites that the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. That's an incredible truth. Like the Lord, your God is near you when you pray to him. And it's not necessarily every time you're going to feel this incredible sense of God's presence. Like there will be moments like that, but most of the time it's just going to feel really normal. Like I remember when I was first learning to pray as a teenager and I was like, am I doing this wrong? Like I'm not really feeling anything. Like is that wrong here? But it's just God is still there. It doesn't, doesn't rely on us kind of feeling things, although sometimes you might. But that what prayer is about is opening up our hearts and just spending time with him. And trusting that in those moments, he's actually reaching in. He's shaping us. He's molding us. He's planting hope deep within your hearts. And I just want to name this. I think we're seeing this increasing measure in our church. Like more and more people are starting to rediscover prayer. Like just spending time with Jesus each day on their own. And as a result, like fear levels are decreasing and hope is starting to rise. And I just want to name it because I, th- I can see the fruit of that happening in our community. And my prayer is actually as a whole church that we would actually step into this. Like in a moment when fear is having a I was going to say flipping field day. When fear is having a field day, like, you know, this week in our politics alone, across our city, like, fear is running riot. But my prayer is that we would wake up and remember our story. Like, we're not a people of fear. Like, that's not what we live under. Jesus is with us. And no matter how dark the night gets, no matter how hard things become, we get to demonstrate the love of Jesus to our city and introduce people to the God of hope. And so I just want to end with a story of a church that's fully awake, just to paint a picture of what it can look like when a church is on fire for God. And it's a story from the church in Iran. And I'm sure kind of many of us um, have been like really praying for Iran over the past few months as we've just seen like the awful kind of oppression that's like bubbled to the surface in that country right now. And let's continue to pray. But the church in that nation is more alive than ever before. And we have got so much to learn from our Iranian brothers and sisters about what it means to discover joy, the joy of the gospel, and to be fully awake. Like to be a Christian in Iran, it's really hard. There's so much persecution, um, especially if you convert from Islam to Christianity. And in 1979, the Islamic Revolution um, took place. And there were just 500 Christians from Muslim backgrounds in the country. But today, the conservative estimate is that there is around 900,000 Muslims who have become Christians. Like just let us think in 900,000 people who have become Christians. God is doing a remarkable thing in that nation, and it is fueled by a church that is fully awake, by people who know the gospel story. And I just, I want to share just one little story as we come into land. I I heard the story of Fashid this week. Um, And he was from a Muslim family. And when he was 17, he and his brother became Christians. Um, And his parents were really angry when they found out. Um, And then Fashid led his sister to Jesus as well. And um, because of this, they just totally disowned him. His parents kicked him out, didn't ever want to see him again. And he trained as a pastor. He just had this desire for people to know the gospel story that he had discovered. Um, and he started his first house church when he was 26, just a small, two families together. But in five years, that church had planted 48 churches in 20 cities across Iran, with 900 Christians in that network, made up of people who had come to faith of those five years. At night, just a guy, 26 years old, just with a desire for people to know the gospel, But in 2010, like, Fashid um, was arrested along with 120 other leaders. And he ended up being imprisoned for five years. And for the first 361 days, he was kept in complete solitary confinement. And he had a daughter, he was seven, he had a son, he was two at the time. He wasn't allowed to see them, didn't know what was happening to them. Like, his cell was only three steps wide, like, just long enough for him to lie down straight in. And they kept the light bulb on, like, 24-7 in the cell so he couldn't sleep. Like, he should have been someone who was filled with total despair. And this is what he writes um, to a friend a couple of years into his sentence. He says this, This possibly is the sweetest truth of my life, that I am God, and I am God's, and he is mine. In our land, um, fig tree does not blossom. The produce of olives has failed. The flock is cut off from the fold. Yet we rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. Because neither the walls, nor the barbed wire, nor the prison, nor suffering, nor loneliness, nor enemies, nor pain, nor even death separates us from the Lord and each other. Like Fashid, he knew that Jesus was walking alongside him on that long road. And he wasn't numb to his presence. The story he belonged to, it didn't just give him the ability to persevere, but to persevere with joy, even in a prison cell. Like he described a time when he was praying in his cell and just spending time with Jesus. And he suddenly experienced for no reason at all so much joy that he couldn't contain himself. And he got up and he was dancing around this three foot cell and he's not allowed to sing. They didn't allow him to sing out loud. So he's whispering worship as he's dancing around his cell in awe of who Jesus is. Like, he's in solitary confinement in one of the harshest prisons in the world, and yet his soul is awake to the good news of Jesus. Like, I long for my soul to be awake like that. We've got so much to learn from these people. And then something happens. After he was out of solitary confinement, he was moved to another prison. But then his mum, who's completely disowned him, shows up at the prison. And he's really shocked to see her. She is a devout Muslim. But she starts to share with him that she felt like her life is sinking. And her words were this, she felt like she had nothing external to cling on to. And then his dad, a few months later, comes to visit. And his dad cannot understand why Fashid is so happy and calm. And he just starts asking question after question, like, what is this gospel that you belong to? And after five long years, like Fashid, he's finally released from prison. And he goes home and he's like, I wonder if I can reconnect with my mum and dad." And what he discovers when he turns up is that his mum and dad, kind of upon seeing Farshid's peace in prison, like they realised that he seemed to have answers that they knew nothing about. So his mum and dad, they'd managed to track down a New Testament and they just started reading it every day together. And after some time talking with them, Farshid leads them to Jesus. And after years, I think it's 20 years or so of praying for them every single day, he has the joy of baptising both of them. And this is how he sums up his time in prison. He says this, Those years were dark in many ways, but when I look back, I do not see it as a dark period of my life. I remember it as a time when I experienced God's faithfulness. People sometimes say to me, Well done, Fashid, for being faithful in prison. But that's not right. He was faithful to me. Like, Do you know Jesus like that? Do you know Jesus' presence with you on that road no matter what? Like, what might it look like if each one of us prayed daily that we might wake up to that same truth of the gospel that allowed Fashi to dance around in a prison cell? Like, I long for us to regain the beauty of the gospel in this church. Like, the church in Iran is not sleeping. It's fully awake. It's fully in love with Jesus. Like, so much so that they're willing to love him, like, no matter what the cost But the fruit is extraordinary. Like in in the last 20 years, in the last two decades, more people from Muslim backgrounds have become Christians than in, in Iran than in the past 13 centuries put together. Like it's remarkable what's happening We live in a city where apathy is so high because people have lost hope. But my prayer for each one of us right here is that we would again have the joy of our salvation restored to us. That instead of echoing our city's fear in this moment, we would be voices of hope into it, reintroducing people to the story that they've been searching for. And that's only ever going to be a work of the Spirit.